Chapter 9, Part 1 of Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Derek McLaughlin. Guide to the Study of the Christian Religion. Edited by Gerald Burney Smith. Chapter 9, Part 1 Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics. Introduction. What is the task of systematic theology? Interesting as is the history of Christianity, the primary concern of most men is with their own religious problems and beliefs. Insofar as a study of history can aid in answering questions of present-day life, it is eagerly used. But every age, indeed every individual, has peculiar circumstances to face, and because of these has peculiar questionings. It is the task of the Department of Systematic Theology to deal with the vital religious beliefs of living men, to appreciate and to interpret the questionings of contemporaneous thinking, and to formulate the convictions which a Christian has a right to hold in the light of the actual conditions of religious thinking and living. The Peculiar Importance of a Study of Theology Today the present generation is passing through one of the most remarkable developments of religious thinking ever known in human history. There is very general perplexity and uncertainty concerning many phases of Christian doctrine. Every pastor will have in his congregation, and more especially in his community, persons who are high-minded and loyal to good ideals, but who find little meaning or inspiration in the inherited formulations of doctrine. In order to influence such men, as well as to inspire those who still love the familiar terms and phrases, one ought to know just what doctrines have meant in human history, and just how the typical experiences of Christian men today may find adequate intellectual formulation. It is precisely here that the teaching of theology in a modern divinity school differs most markedly from that of a generation ago. Then it was taken for granted that the inherited system of doctrine was entirely adequate to express the real convictions of Christian men. Today the theologian is facing a world of ideas and aspirations which owe their origin to scientific, social, and industrial activities which have altered the conditions of human living. He must therefore consider the problems of religious belief in relation to all these comparatively new but intensely real factors of modern life and so formulate Christian convictions that they may enable men to carry their religion into all realms of life. Theology may be defined as the attempt to think over our religious inheritance in the light of present problems, so as to formulate for today and to transmit to the coming generation an expression of faith vitally related to our actual life. There is no short and easy way of gaining a theology today. We must creatively think through a host of problems which found no place in the theological treatises of former days, just because the conditions of life formerly were different from the exigencies of thought and of action which we must daily confront. It is the purpose of the following discussion to call attention to the principal problems which a theological student today must face, and to indicate the way in which beliefs are to be worked out. 1. The Method of Theological Inquiry the fundamental issue in modern theology. We have inherited the conception of Christianity as a perfect revelation of truth which abides substantially unchanged from age to age. 
The theologian, from this point of view, is not searching for truth, as are men who deal with mere human science. His truth is given to him by revelation, and has only to be effectively expounded and interpreted. According to this conception, the most that a modern theologian might expect to accomplish in the way of advance would be to point out the inadequacy of former interpretations. But he, like all his predecessors, would be expected to find the content of Christian truth already given in the Bible. But what does the history of religious thinking reveal? Has the content of Christianity actually remained constant? Have not the exigencies of changing human experience compelled a changing theology? For example, do we take seriously today the biblical doctrine of demons? On the other hand, are we not vitally interested in some doctrines about which biblical writers knew nothing, as, for example, the conception of evolution? The fact that Christian theology has actually been developing and changing throughout its history comes into conflict with the theory of a divinely authorized, unchangeable content of doctrine. Orthodoxy and Modernism the above-mentioned question is crucial in all divisions of Christianity. In Roman Catholicism, the advocates of unyielding authority are in serious controversy with the modernists, who recognize the fact and the significance of historical evolution. Nowhere is this issue more clearly stated than in the encyclical letter of Pope Pius X against modernism and in the program of modernism put forth in reply. The papal letter judges everything on the basis of conformity to the authoritatively prescribed system. The modernists declare that historical facts must be frankly recognized, even if it be necessary to modify the system. Precisely the same division of opinion runs through Protestantism. Orthodoxy and liberalism can scarcely understand each other, for each starts from premises which the other would deny. Our traditional denominational divisions prevent Protestants from realizing the importance of this issue as it is realized in Catholicism, but it is more or less keenly felt by every thoughtful man. To study the task of theology in the light of this fundamental cleavage is imperative if the student is to understand the problems of theological thinking today. The change from the method of appeal to authority to the method of free inquiry. In attempting to formulate our beliefs today, we are subject to pressure from the two ideals described above. On the one hand is the inherited demand that the system of doctrine which has been authoritatively promulgated shall be transmitted unimpaired. Every Christian is familiar with the injunction to hold fast the faith once delivered. On the other hand, many thinkers of our time feel that this inherited system does not do justice to the demands of living faith. There is a rapidly increasing number of loyal Christians who insist that religious beliefs must be large enough to include the truth of modern discovery as well as the truth of ancient scripture. What now is the task of the theologian? Is he primarily the custodian of an authorized system? If so, his sole task will be to expound the content of the revelation which has been committed to him. Or is the modern theologian, like the modern physician or the modern educator, to ask how the interests of living men may best be cared for. If so, he must be ready to modify or to discard traditional doctrines whenever investigation sheds new light on religious problems. Theology in such a case would alter the content of religious hypotheses as readily as any science alters the content of its hypotheses in response to more exact knowledge. 
Protestant theology is beginning to abandon the method of appeal to authority, but it has not yet, as a rule, come to face squarely the tests of free investigation, as have other branches of human knowledge. The student will find that most theological writings today are characterized by considerable vagueness and by many inconsistencies. While the inadequacy of the mere appeal to authority is generally recognized by modern theologians, nevertheless their habits of thinking have generally been formed under the sway of the authority ideal, and they are constantly seeking to find some acceptable way of continuing to employ the familiar method. Thus, while the older supports are admittedly weakening, men have not yet learned to rely confidently on the somewhat unfamiliar supports of critical examination. There is a general desire to find some basis which criticism cannot touch. The student should realize that we are living through a transition period in which theologians are not very sure of themselves. A primary question of moral loyalty. The method of appeal to authority involves the enlistment of a high moral loyalty. If the theologian has been entrusted with a divinely authorized message, loyalty bids him deliver it in its integrity. Any departure from the authorized truth would be dishonorable. It would be like treachery to the government which one has sworn to uphold. Heresy, from this point of view, is willful sin. If, now, a theologian does actually depart from the authorized content of doctrine, he has to meet the traditional feeling that he is a traitor to the cause. So strong is this feeling that a religious man today is almost inevitably compelled to adopt an apologetic method of setting forth new doctrines. He is led to use the familiar terms and phrases so far as possible, and to make what he holds to be true seem as much like orthodox doctrine as possible. The traditional conception of moral loyalty brings the strong temptation to make the duty of conformity more important than the duty of exact truth-telling. New meanings are thus smuggled in under familiar labels, with a resulting lack of clearness in thinking. The student should recognize the dangers involved in serving two masters in his attempts at theologizing. He should see that there are really two very different questions which may be asked when one confronts the task of constructing a doctrinal statement. One question is, what is the content of authorized belief? The other is, what, in the light of careful critical study, is the truth? The student should make clear to himself which question is guiding him. Much confusion arises in modern theology from the fact that these questions are not clearly distinguished. Fidelity to the implications of the first question would mean that the student must eliminate all personal preferences and seek to make his thinking conform to that of Scripture. Fidelity to the viewpoint of the second question would mean that critical inquiry must determine what one shall say. Now, critical methods do enter fundamentally into any theology but the conclusions dictated by criticism are frequently so shaped and modified as to appear to be results of mere interpretation of Scripture. The danger in such attempts is that one may eventually have neither good exegesis nor good criticism. Modern books on theology frequently indulge in clever rhetorical statements which serve, indeed, to allay the fears of conservative Christians, but which also fail to meet the demands of earnest and exact thinking. Such adjustments of statement are likely to involve a failure to be thoroughly loyal either to Scripture or to the demands of criticism. And when stern loyalty is relaxed, the door to clever time-serving is wide open. The Religious Value of Critical Honesty 
Probably there is no greater need today than the acquirement of an attitude which does not involve distrust of the processes of critical examination. Every intelligent man knows that critical scholarship prevails in all important modern theological schools. Moreover, while occasionally an individual is unable to unite positive religious conviction with critical methods, there is no evidence that those who employ critical scholarship are as a rule any more lacking in religious devotion and power than are those who fear critical methods. The attempt to retain the appeal to authority and at the same time to cultivate an acquaintance with critical methods leads to a habit of harmonization which withholds one from the kind of accuracy essential to self-respect and to real influence with men. It is of fundamental importance that the student of theology should learn to feel the religious value of honestly facing the facts. The man who has taken this attitude of absolute loyalty to whatever proves itself to be true possesses a spiritual strength which can never be attained by one who is in constant dread lest criticism make inroads into his faith. It is only as one comes to feel that loyalty to the truth is more religious than mere conformity to a prescribed statement that the full value of critical methods will appear. Because of timidity and attempts at compromise, the new theology has not yet had an opportunity to disclose its entire power. So long as departures from traditional positions must be made apologetically, there is the tacit admission that strict conformity is morally better. If this be admitted, any departure from the authorized doctrine exists on sufferance. The theologian willing to make concessions to modern ideas seems made of less heroic stuff than one who defies innovations. Only a devotion to the interests of modern life which shall express something of the religious passion which animated Jesus in his rebuke to Pharisaic conformity can adequately strengthen one who faces the future rather than the past. Without this conviction of moral compulsion, a new theology will be nothing more than a pleasing essay. The Value of Historical Study for the Student of Theology one whose task it is to uphold a prescribed doctrine will inevitably employ the method of debate. One's own position is put in the most favorable light possible, while opposing views are discredited by all possible means. The systematic theologies which employ the method of appeal to authority make large use of debate. The controversial spirit prevails. Denominational distinctions are emphasized. The historical method of studying theology means the abandonment of the debater's attitude. For example, while the debater will seek out all possible considerations which enable him to affirm or deny the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch, the historical student must refuse to allow his study to be determined by a preconceived theory. He must attempt to take account of all the facts, and must let his conclusions be dictated by these facts. Modern historical study presupposes the painstaking examination of all the evidence, rather than the determined defense of a theory declared authoritatively to be the truth. While the adherent of the method of appeal to authority is primarily concerned with content of doctrine, the historical scholar is primarily concerned with accuracy of investigation. Thus, while abandonment of a doctrine seems to the believer in authority like radical disloyalty, it is an incidental matter to the historical scholar. The latter is concerned that the investigation shall be accurate, whatever may be the result and content of doctrine. He inevitably feels a confidence in a critically established doctrine which he could not feel in any theory which has not been subjected to criticism. 
conclusions reached by historical inquiry may be revised or even abandoned without involving distress of spirit or without involving any sense of moral disloyalty to the old one thus obtains a spiritual anchorage changes in religious convictions become possible without the period of moral disintegration engendered by the attempt to compromise with the dogmatic attitude as a steadying power for students of theology in this transitional age the value of training in the methods of historical interpretation can scarcely be overestimated. Certainly no student ought to attempt to deal with the problems of systematic theology today without first having learned the full significance of the historical study of the Bible and of Christian history. The Outcome of the Historical Study of Christianity The historical study of Christianity makes it clear that religion is always in the making. Every generation inherits from the preceding age certain doctrines and ideals which were wrought out in the struggles and the triumphs of faith in the past. But each new generation has to ask its own questions. New conditions arise, making necessary adjustments of faith. Out of efforts at adjustment, changes in doctrine come about. Historical study attempts to explain the significance of doctrine-making in terms of the actual questions which were being asked and for which satisfactory answers were being sought. The historical student is never satisfied with mere statistics. He wants to know not simply what Isaiah or Jeremiah said, he wants also to know why they said what they said. If this latter question can be answered, it serves to relate the utterances of a man vitally to the religious problems which he must face. It reveals the fact that theology arises just because men ask searching questions and demand profound answers to those questions. The Nature of a Vital Theology Today This view of doctrine, resulting from historical appreciation, should be consistently carried into the realm of doctrinal formulation today. If the analysis of the experience of men in biblical times is the key to the understanding of the making of biblical doctrine, then the way to formulate doctrine for our own day is to analyze the religious longings and experiences of the present. We, like every generation, have inherited doctrines and ideals. But we have our own peculiar problems to face, and we must use our inheritance, and, where necessary, modify it, so as to meet these problems. Insofar as the circumstances of our life differ from those of former generations, our beliefs must differ. Sometimes a theologian faces conditions essentially identical with those which prevailed when the inherited doctrine was formulated. In such a case no striking changes take place. Sometimes, as occurred when Israel had to meet the fact of national dissolution, or as is the case when we today have to learn to preserve our ideals in the midst of the bewildering novelties introduced by modern learning and invention, the changes in doctrine will be very great. If the student can come to measure the validity of his theologizing, not by its conformity to standards of the past, but by its capacity to meet the questions of the present, he will be in a position to do fruitful work. The ability to see that this prophetic spirit, which makes the needs of the present and of the future supreme, is the impelling force leading to the construction of strong religious beliefs, is one of the chief gains from the historical study of the Bible. To incorporate this spirit into theological method today is far more important, and more true to the deepest spiritual meaning of the Bible itself, than authoritatively to reproduce biblical doctrines for our acceptance. End of chapter 9, part 1.